The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I have a return guest, but he hadn't been here in a while. Uh, we'll, we'll take care of that and have him back uh, more regularly. Stan Soloway of uh, Solero Strategy. Stan, welcome back to the show, man. Great to be here, Mark. It is always fun to have you. Um, we're going to be talking uh, uh, re- really uh, a, a show about environmental scanning, looking at the big picture of the government market and and what's shaping things and what companies need to be aware of, what they need to be doing. So uh, uh, first, tell people, uh, I'm assuming most people know who you are. Uh, we, we, we would hope at this point, but, but tell them who you are, what you do, what Solero does. So Solero Strategies is a, exactly as it sounds like it's a, a growth strategy consulting firm, and we work with government contractors and those who want to become government contractors on strategy and market positioning, market trends, and so forth. We have a fairly strong emphasis on the tech space, um, but primarily across the professional services and, and technology environment. Cool. Um, so, what, uh, I mean, before we, we started recording, uh, I wish we had recorded a lot of that stuff, but we're going to rehash it now. Give me give me some ideas of, of the uh, the forces currently shaping our market. Uh, you, you were talking about uh, the budget, for instance. So. Yeah, I, I, well, I think that this is – there's nothing new to, or particularly uh, insightful to suggest that the market is shaped by, by the same forces today as it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. One is budget, one is mission, and one is people. Uh, and that's really what, what has, has – those have been the, the driving fa- factors behind, behind um, how the market has evolved. What I think is changing is the interplay of those those three things. Um, the people issue has been an issue for a long time. I think it's a well-established fact. We've seen multiple studies, reports, and, and a lot of data around the challenges the government has in uh, recruiting and retaining uh, talent, particularly, particularly contemporary skilled talent, what some people call the new-collar workforce, um, around technology. Uh, you look at the data around human capital and you see that if you look at uh, the official OPM data around information technology professionals, that for everyone that's under 30, there are 10 that are over 50. And that, that ratio has pretty much held steady for the last eight or 10 years, which also suggests that the numerous efforts that have been made to change that dynamic to provide special hiring authorities and so forth, going back to Tom Davis when he was in Congress and pushing through some information technology workforce legislation um, hasn't actually solved the problem. I also heard the other day, and, and this is an interesting uh, – I, I want to get a little bit more of the data, so I want to be careful how I say this, but somebody who I, I highly respect who's actually in the administration said that they've done some looking at workforce. And if you think about the millennials, my, our generation, which is in the beginning of retirement phase, that the next generation, um, the government, quote, did not get its share of the workforce. In other words, a smaller percentage – uh, we're, in, we're inclined to go into public sector workforce, and the same is increasingly true. I mean, when I said we're millennials, we're not millennials. We're, <laughs> we're boomers. <laughs> I meant the boomers who are retiring. I'm sorry. Well, that was, that was a, 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 if I only. 
Uh, but the, also with the millennial workforce, you see, a, a, again, a decreasing percentage of interest in public sector work. So you, you can see just from a sheer numbers perspective a gap arising. But in the key skill sets, it's particularly acute. So that problem has been there for a long time. There's been a number of things that the government's tried to do. They haven't exactly worked terribly well. Um, although they've helped in some cases, and it's been a huge driver for a long time for the growth of professional services, which is really human capital gap filling. And I don't mean butts and seats. I mean bringing substantial solutions, expertise, and so forth that the government simply can't access itself organically. You couple that with mission. Very clear. Mission has been evolving in complexity for years. As technology evolves and more rapidly evolves, obviously the complexity of the mission evolves we are now in a, in a completely different kind of world with asymmetric warfare and, and all kinds of things. I don't care what agency you're in, the mission complexities or the, the way we deliver the mission has changed dramatically. The big thing that, that, I, that I'm really curious to see how it plays out, and we won't know this for a couple of years, is now the budget picture. We've argued for a long time that the budget is a big driver in the sense that you can see trends in, in spending uh, around budget numbers. It, it, it's not linear – but there is a relationship in the sense that market share, if you will, of contracts against the budget, as if you think of the budget as the total market, has been relatively steady over the last number of years until last year where it spiked up a bit. Um, whether that's a one-year spike or not, we don't know. But more importantly, we have gotten to a point – and this is a personal opinion, but I think it's borne out by the economics – where we're hitting we have a budget cliff that is unavoidable and again this is this is politically agnostic because everybody's been part of this this for a long time but if you just look at the simple budget data and you look at the size of the debt you look at the role of interest annual interest payments on the debt and how it, those relate to the federal budget because it's part of the budget it's a mandatory spend and in not uh, within the next few years it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood <coughs> of the t equal, the total budget for all the civilian agencies of government. So think about that. So you're going to have potentially have a situation where our interest payments annually on the debt are the same amount we're paying to operate all of the non-defense activities of government. That's a big number. Now what happens if we have a one-quarter or one-half or 2% increase in interest rates? When your number is that big, the impacts are astronomical. So we're heading – and I won't get into a whole budget – discourse here, but we're, we're, we're heading over this cliff. And really one of the questions that, that I think we face is, does that actually create the next big pivot point for the government? We know we have the mission challenges. We know the people challenges. And now with the budget, is that going to finally drive the government into some new space, new way of thinking about how to conduct its missions, drive much more innovation, much more openness to completely different ways of thinking? And reduce the debt. <laughs> and maybe the only way you can actually operate. Ouch. That's pretty scary. Uh, it's scary. Well, the budget picture is scary. Yeah. It has been for a while, and I think there's – most people on both sides of the aisle are nervous about where we're headed. And, um, you know, it's it, the deficits are the deficits, and they're obviously a trillion plus. And when you're only spending a trillion dollars – only, it's a lot of money. But when you're spending a trillion plus on your operating budget, which is basically put defense and civilian budgets together – right. And you you have a deficit that's equally as large. You can't you can't cut your way out of it. So does this open the door? And I, th I think it gets into a broader discussion, which I know you want to have about what we're actually seeing in the government around innovation, experimentation, and the ability to now scale some of that.
Well, yeah, and and, and we were talking beforehand about uh, the government being technologically usually uh, uh, in technological terms a generation behind uh, the commercial world, so somewhere between five and eight years behind technologically. Um, we 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 can't sustain that. No, and I think one of the things that that has happened. And again, it's early stages, so I can say this now and I'll probably be long retired before you can prove me right or wrong. But if you look at the rise in the use of other transactions authority, which is a big thing now, particularly at DOD, which has the authority to use other transactions, which are non-FAR-based contracts, through the life cycle of a need as opposed to just for R&D, which is what they originally were set up to do. There's been this dramatic increase in the use of other transactions from something like $500 million five or six years ago to – I think we'll hit close to $4 billion in the coming year. Now, that's against a large spend. That's not a lot, but it's a big trend. Right. Um, if, you, if you think about that, what's actually starting to happen, if you look at where that's coming from, that's coming from the customers. It is the, 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 the senior military, the smart 04s, 05s, 06s, uh, the, you know, the captains and colonels coming up to, and, 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 and so forth coming up to the system – we have a much more open mind about the use of technology and are frustrated with a system that doesn't seem to be getting them precisely what they need or the most contemporary capability, particularly if you think about let's leave all the weapon systems to the side. The amount of other transactions that are going towards business systems, logistics and supply chain, financial management and so forth. That when you talk about being behind the commercial sector – uh, there have been a number of reports, including one uh, – I believe it was Accenture that put out a couple years ago that said – that if you look at what's happening with innovation in the commercial world, a larger portion of it than ever before is actually being driven by older, well-heeled manufacturing concerns. In other words, not by the small startups, but by manufacturing companies that over the last 20 years have the lights gone off and they've seen some of the benefits of some of the innovations that have been driven and they've taken advantage of. And they are now turning around and pushing the innovators and saying, this is where I want to go with this. This is the next – your product roadmap needs to include X. It needs to include Y. We see this with a couple of our clients that are actually Silicon Valley companies that are not startups, but they're not they're, – they're sort of late-stage startups. Uh, they're being pushed by their customers now as to mm-hmm. where they're taking their product. That's really what the other transactions push is about. It's the customer pushing the system and saying, this is what I need, partially around capability and also partially around accessibility. And so you have those two challenges. I mean, they can look out and say, there's a great supply chain solution out there, but I can't get to it because the company doesn't do far part 15 procurements. So they're using or whatever it might be. I mean, you could – that's – I'm being a little flip about it. Sure. But that, yeah. that, that worm is starting to turn. That's what's driving the other transactions piece. And, and you see more experimentation today, more willingness to try things out, more small pilots and so forth than we've I've seen in my old career um, you and I were both at a forum a couple of weeks ago where uh, Dan Helfrich, who's just been named as the head of all consulting for, for Deloitte globally, uh, talked about – I think he called it the I believe button. And the number of people pushing the I believe button is definitely going up. It's not dominant, but it's definitely growing. And so you start putting that together with some of these budget challenges and you say, geez, this may be a time that we're going to start to see some real shifts and that has real implications for folks who have been in the market for a long time. Yeah, it does. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Stan right after this.
Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm here with Stan Soloway, President and CEO of Solero Strategies. You can find uh, Solero at C-E-L-E-R-O-Strat.com. Solero-Strat.com. And you can find Stan on LinkedIn. Um, so uh, give, given what you were talking about in the first segment, are, are there near-term impacts, changes? Uh, uh, so, I mean, we, we have the OTA. We have the rise of the OTA. We seem to have a, a rise in, in the use of a few other vehicles. But, I mean, I don't know if those are from uh, from the budgets or, or what. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's – you have a combination of forces out there and that, that are not necessarily related uh, in the sense of what's driving them uh, – so you have a, a push for shared services, although we still haven't seen shared services take off in a big way, although that clearly GSA's role in the procurement sphere has, has grown significantly in recent years. Um, but what I was thinking in terms of uh, if you think about the commercial model versus where government is, you could also think back to where a lot of states were 10, 15 years ago, some even recently, more recently – um, but they were literally facing bankruptcy, some states, and some just muddled through it. I remember one very large company uh, had a contract with the state of California that was a uh, based on an IOU, and they had to take it to their board because it was a $200 million contract for their board to approve it because it was an IOU. They couldn't pay them on any regular schedule. Um, but other states um, did were, were started experimenting with different ways of procuring, of doing different kinds of partnerships. It, it, and I'm not talking about just infrastructure partnerships where you have – private capital helping to build new garages or what have you, but public-private partnerships around technology and, and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and, and that was how they both satisfied increasing customer demand, which really at the state level, at the local level, it's obviously far more personalized than it is at the federal level, but also dealing with the, 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 the capital shortfall. And that's something that I know OMB is thinking about at the federal level now is how do we attract and access more capital to make up for what we simply don't have and we'll have even less of it in the future. That then drives you into the procurement discussion and so forth. I think the more immediate stuff we're seeing, and to, to your question, um, is we haven't mentioned this yet, but one of the big drivers is not just agile software development and all that entails, but the whole emergence and embrace of agile thinking, agile strategies. And I don't, again, don't mean it in a software sense. Um, you see agencies increasingly looking at more incremental steps and in, uh, thinking of programs in a very agilely strategic way, if that's a proper use of the term. <clears throat> Is um, now. And, 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 I, and that clearly begins to change how, if you're an integrator at any size, sort of what is your role in the process? And it, it, Because it's not necessarily going to be a soup to nuts relationship. It may be a piece of it. Now, there's... In any complex technology environment, like any complex system, you need integration capabilities. You need tremendous systems engineering and integration skills, domain expertise, and all the things that go into that. But they are deployed in a different way when you're doing it incrementally. And that drives some business model changes for, for companies. And um, so you start to see the people thinking about how does that affect the way I go to market. Um, but it also opens the door and I think you and I have talked about this before, it may well open the door to smaller and mid-sized firms being able to play at a level that they haven't in the past, both because the 
the, the requirements are somewhat smaller. They're not entire total solutions packages all the time. And second, because the rise of the application economy has enabled you to take things to scale that you couldn't take to scale before. So can a mid-tier company be more play more of an integrator role, uh, even smaller companies? So I think there's a whole bunch of pieces to that puzzle that are still yet to be put on the board and pulled together and how far it will go. But it's clearly driving uh, different thinking and has companies really have to be preparing themselves for a market that is changing in front of us and is going to be under even more pressure going forward. But in the agile approach that you're discussing, wouldn't it make more sense as the development progresses to have conversations between the vendor and the IT people and contracting to evolve that idea? And is that precluded at least in part by the FAR? No, I don't think it is at all. I think okay. that, that I think that that's we used to call that IPTs, integrated process or integrated product teams. Um, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of iteration that can go on, and collaboration that can go on amongst the different stakeholders. I think one of the very core one one, one core element of Agile is this whole concept of user centered design and bringing the user into the to the discussion all the way through. And, and, and testing and, and building on, on, on the user experience. Um, that, by definition, requires you to have all the different forces, all the different stakeholders that drive or control the relationship. That means contracting has got to be part of the conversation. That means legal has got to be part of the conversation in some sense. That means your, your, your technology, your IT teams need to be part of it, and clearly the vendor community needs to be part of it. I think that, to your point, um, and I, again, I haven't looked carefully at all of the awards around Agile to date, but the award itself would be around a need, and then you go do the the design piece where all the forces come together. But you can structure a procurement where you can select a vendor for a, this piece of the pie, this puzzle, and then you get all the f- players together. The key is do you have all of the right stakeholders in the process, particularly from the user? It's got to be user-centric. That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. We should ask our mutual buddy Cameron Luthy to uh, uh, to pull up a little research on that agile approach and see if indeed it is expanding. Uh, well, it's I'm not well, I can it. tell you right now, it's definitely expanding. I mean, people tend to measure it, or some people might measure it by looking at the data to say, well, there's only been one BPA let for agile software development capabilities, which GSA did, um, and they identified I think, 23 companies, and most of them smaller. Um, but if you look at mid-tier and the larger companies, they are all have invested in and developed Agile DevOps capabilities or are in the process of doing so. They are all developing or are in the process of developing expertise around user-centered design, uh, journey mapping, and all those elements of the, of the puzzle that, that, that are part of an Agile environment. Okay. So to, to get back to a point you made earlier about, you know, maybe smaller and mid-sized companies being uh, more attuned to the agile and maybe there's a door opening for them there, um, it, it seems to me that the smaller firms, at least the intelligent smaller firms, have an easier uh, way in one sense positioning themselves as the go-to firm for a very particular piece of this puzzle. It could be. I mean, because smaller firms, I think you're right. They tend, they have the ability to focus in a way that that the larger you get, the more spread out you, by definition, become. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that they they necessarily um, have more of a fealty or affinity for agile. I think it's 
the opportunity exists for a smaller company to play a larger role because we're now talking less and less about the implementation of huge IT systems and more about um, staged incremental improvements through the use of applications and so forth. I think the other piece, of, and we are doing this with several clients now, is if you're a smaller or mid-tier player, is there is an appeal to the customer of having a smaller or mid-tier player in many way on many levels, which is not to take anything away from the large companies, which have great can also have great customer relations. Um, but putting together the right teams, so you don't have to do everything organically. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a DevOps shop to play in Agile. What you have to have is other expertise that you can combine with a really good DevOps team, and then you can really take something to, to market. Do you follow me? Yeah. So you don't have to have your organic technology development. What you have to have is technology chops. You need to understand where technology is. You don't need to be a technologist. That then helps you partner. Um, they can be funnels for new capabilities coming from the commercial sector that are looking for ways to come into government. Oftentimes, it's harder for them to do business with large the very large integrators, it's just a more challenging environment. But partnerships can be established between those smaller and mid-sized firms and some of these new emerging capabilities. Um, so there are different kinds of opportunity, I think, presenting themselves as opposed to them necessarily having more affinity. Uh, now, for, for large integrators, this has been a case for a number of years. I was on a panel probably four years ago, three or four years ago, at, um, at, at the big health IT conference um, where the, whole, the, the title of the panel was um, – is the day of the integrator over, you know, the post-agile environment? The answer is no, it's not over, but it is different. Well, everybody has to adapt, period. Uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can find Stan again at Solero, C-E-L-E-R-O hyphen strat.com and on LinkedIn. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm here with Stan Soloway of Solero Strategies. Um, and, and oddly enough, I want to talk about strategies. Oh, the so, concept. Um, yeah, weird concept, huh? Um, and I, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. As, as a business concept, strategy did not evolve until the 60s. That's, that still blows my mind. Um, but – it is what it is. So strategies for growth in our market begin where? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, if you go back to the beginning of our conversation, I think it starts at a very high level and really understanding um, not all the not all the down in the weeds stuff, but really understanding kind of where your customers' resources are and are going. In other words – what is the art of the customer possibilities going forward? And that's where the budget comes in. And it's not just how much is my agency my customer getting, but what are the dynamics that could have impact how money is freed up? So, so how people have adjusted to a world of continuing resolutions is a good example that the industry has adjusted to it. And it's not ideal. It certainly slows things down, but the industry is in great shape. It's been doing quite well. So we've strategically figured out how to adjust to that as have some agencies who continue to do a remarkable job of operating amidst that uncertainty. Right. Um, so I think it starts at that level. But I think the other th- is you come down, and we, we talked a few minutes ago about you don't have to have a, be a technologist to succeed in a technology-driven world. You need to understand technology and how it relates to what you're doing. I think there are a couple of other pieces to that that are also really important without going across the whole panoply of things that, that people need to be thinking about. 
We can make it two shows. Yeah, <laughs> well, and, and bore people to death. But I think that 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 one of the things we need to be thinking about is how we talk about technology to the customer base. If I think about user-centered design in a world where the user is very often going to be a non-technology person, it's going to be a warehouse manager. It's going to be a um, it, it could be a um, name a function that is not necessarily run by somebody who has a background in information technology or, or DevOps or, or any of those fields. So how we talk about and communicate with those folks about the art of the possible, the outcomes that are going to be driven, rather than about how cool the technology is, I think is really important. So you hear a lot of conversations about blockchain now. You hear a lot of conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks. All of it's very real. It's actually out there and it's starting to happen. But there's a relatively small universe of people who actually understand what it means from a technology perspective. I consider myself reasonably intelligent. I'm too old to be a, a contemporary technologist. Um, but I try – I spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what is the implication of blockchain, not from a technology perspective, but from a functional perspective. What does it do to the nature of the work? And – I think how we talk about those things with customers to help them understand from their perspective how the nature of the work changes, which a lot of folks are now starting to talk about, but also how the nature of the work, the existing workforce is going to be doing changes. So if you think about process automation, and it's going to, by definition, in many cases, reduce labor. That's part of what it does. But that doesn't mean it, the people, people who are doing that work now shouldn't or won't have jobs in the future. It's a question of having an advanced strategy for what, how you're going to implement it, how you're going to roll it out, how you're going to reskill people, redeploy skills. Um, uh, I think that that's as you look at the if you look at the demographics of the workforce, you actually have an opportunity now to be thinking very strategically about the rollout of technology, using some of those demographics as a guide path, so you're not doing this on the back of the people because you don't need to. I think one of the things that we've lost sight of over the last number of years, and I get into a political discussion, is what what is the future for those who are doing it? So if I've got a workforce at average age of 52, I'm making that up, or 49, which is, by the way, not out of the question. Right. I know by definition over X number of years I'm going to have a certain amount of retirement attrition just, just by retirement. Okay, so now how do, I, how do I overlay that against how I roll out and implement solutions? In the government, by definition, it's not going to be as radical as it is could be in a company. And a CEO of a company, a CEO of the company that owns the radio station could decide tomorrow we're cutting 500 jobs and we're going to go do this automatically. There have been changes already in broadcast media. Or any media. Any yeah. media. You yeah. look at robotic cameras in a TV studio, right? That's, that's a dictate from on high total control. I joke, and I don't mean to be disrespectful here. I joke with folks that God doesn't have that power with the government, that you can mandate cuts – um, and that's happened. That was happened during the Clinton administration and otherwise. But that's not how you actually shape your workforce of the future. You have to have a strategy for doing it, and you have to have the patience to do it right in the federal space. Otherwise, there's just going to be too much opposition. That becomes part, I think, of the market approach for companies bringing these capabilities to government. I think that that's a role they have to help play. Yeah, and, and you make a strong argument there, even though it was unintentional, that OMB and OPM should be – career non-politicals because otherwise you're going to have a change in strategy potentially every four years 
Well, that's that's a, you know, and I could well I could make that argument about a, a you know a number of areas of government, but I, I will say that one of the things that's impressed me uh, is that Margaret Weikert is actually the director of OMB, who's also the acting director of OPM. Uh, Margaret is thinking about this stuff. She's thinking about what the re- coming retirement wave actually means in terms of their ability to the one that I predicted ten years ago. Well, <laughs> remember <laughs> you may remember back in the '90s we were crying about it, and it actually started to happen in acquisition. Yes, and we cut people, <clears throat> and we had a retirement wave. Uh, it didn't happen as quickly elsewhere, um, but but there are folks like Margaret Weicker who are actually seriously thinking about this and what is it? What does it mean? And and, and I put her in sort of the non political political category, if you will. Right, I, I I understand that category, and unfortunately, it's too rare. Um, but nature of the beast. So. Um, Let's let's take our break now and have a long last segment. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Stan Soloway right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm having a conversation with Stan Soloway, President and CEO of Solero Strategies. Uh, again, you can find Stan at Solero C E L E R O dash strategy dot strat dot com. SoleroStrat.com um, and on LinkedIn. Uh, Stan, we, we've been talking about this off-air a lot. Um, we're, we're not going to talk about a particular contract, but the, the evolution of the cloud in the government market is illustrative of a lot of situations that seem to uh, uh, to recur. And you have examples from when, when you were in DOD a while back, uh, but I want to migrate back to cloud as we wrap this up. So – Take it away. <laughs> well, without you know, I think I think the, the 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 core point we were talking about is is how what's going on with the cloud market and government today might be analogous to other things that were happening back in the mid to late nineties. And so let's we can talk about Jedi, the the, the DoD post contract from that perspective, without getting into whether the acquisition strategy is the right strategy or the wrong strategy, but thinking about at least in part what's driving the way DoD has been approaching it. And if you talk to the folks who were really behind the Jedi acquisition strategy, a lot of them, a lot of it out of the Defense Digital Service, uh, the Defense Innovation Board, uh, Defense Innovation Unit, and others within the building, in the conversations I've had with them, it's been very much about we want to be able to ride the commercial wave mm-hmm. and to take advantage of a commer- of a dynamic commercial market that is the dynamics of which are much faster and more dynamic than traditionally we see in government. Now, there's a lot of layers to that and a lot you could unpack, but let's just take it at the sort of the high level and then think conceptually. Um, back in the 90s, and just to go back 20, about 20 years now, um, we used to ask the question, not at all critically of Boeing, but Boeing had its major defense facilities, let's say in Wichita, Kansas, and their major commercial operations in Seattle, Washington, and the question was, why aren't we merging the two? We, used to call it, we called it at the time civil-military integration. There's so much common work being done, even though obviously if fighters and tankers are a different government than they are in the commercial world, there was a lot of commonality. And yet we were paying the freight for and not really a part of that commercial wave, right? And there are a lot of problems and challenges of getting to that, and it's not a simple equation. We have somewhat the same thing happening now with this the Jedi concept. Um, if you talk to folks, at least I did when I'll, – I'll, I'll relay an analogy here or a story, a quick anecdote here um, that you and I talked about earlier. 
uh, one federal official asked me about two or three years ago. He he was running a, a large multiple award uh, contract and said that he had been looking to find in the commercial marketplace a tool, a software tool that was basically spot pricing for cloud services because it's a commodity. It's all over the place. And how do we get make sure we're getting the right pricing? And I thought it was a really interesting question. And so I, I actually called three nephews, all of whom are in the technology world. Um, and they all gave me the same answer independently, which was, we don't know of any such thing and we actually don't care that much. And the answer was, obviously, there's one dominant player in the market. Mm-hmm. So spot pricing is a little bit iffy. Uh, but there were, in their view, three or four companies that were really making an impact in commercial. But the differences were typically pennies. What they were focused on is high-level sort of got a big job we're doing, do it late at night because the traffic's slighter. Um, but what they were really focused on was service levels and the capabilities of the providers because the pennies that difference that you pay actually come out in the outcome, right? It's right. a very classic. We in government were still at that time thinking about we want to know what the pennies are. Um so that's the commercial model versus the traditional government model. Now we fast forward and you've got Jedi, you've got the CIA recently announcing that, that they're going to do their, their next generation of their cloud contract will have multiple holders. Um, there's at least one or two new infrastructure facilities already being readied for what they expect to be a shared marketplace. Um, I believe that, 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 the, that the Jedi approach was a single that – why do I need? And I'm asking the question. I don't. I'm not going to offer my answer because it's right. it's just an opinion. Why do I, as the government, need 30 providers of cloud services when the commercial world there's a handful? And here are my requirements. Here's the standards you need to hit. And that's all I care about because it really matters is all the applications in the cloud and all the management of those applications and so forth. The cloud itself becomes a commoditized capability. Um, you could make arguments whether they wrote the requirements right and you could talk about security and so forth. But for the most part, that's sort of what they're thinking. Again, because there's – with the exception of the very high security environments that some special – obviously very specialized stuff that we do in the government, um, it is largely a commercial enterprise with pretty you – know, you look at AWS and Azure. I mean their security protocols and what they've qualified at, pretty high. Yeah, yeah. And and for the uh, for the few companies, relative few companies that have made it through FedRAMP, you know, pretty stringent requirements. Right, so. and, and and we're moving to the world of hybrid clouds and yeah. and and and, and you know, multi-cloud environments and so forth. So, I think again, not advocating for or against the Jedi acquisition strategy. I think right. it's a signal of some of the forces that are actually trying to take that next step. Well, it, of, of accessing and, and capitalizing on commercial. Yeah, the, the the Jedi thing is is really just kind of ancillary to our discussion. But the way markets tend to shake out, and and again, this stems from the research that we were talking about earlier off air. Um, when when a new uh, uh, area of expertise shows up, usually there's three top players that evolve, and the top player takes sixty plus percent. The number two player usually takes 20 to 30, and the third major player or relative major player takes minor share, and then there's possibly also RANs involved in that. And that's exactly the way this has shaken out right now, except there's two companies vying for the number three spot. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and I would say your model is actually even more predominant when you're dealing with commodities. Yeah. Oh, most definitely right. with, with, with commodities. That's uh, largely where the research initially was done. And we, we could bear that out through pretty much any GSA schedule if you track it through mm-hmm. the schedule sales query. You know, the top five, ten companies are taking 60 percent of any particular schedule that you look at. Yeah. And but, but just to harken back to something unrelated to cloud, but it does – what you just – your comment just strike, struck me is when we talk about trends in the marketplace – any company in this market that is not carefully watching what GSA is doing and understanding what GSA is doing is missing potentially significant changes. The the transformation of the schedules, this goal of having a single corporate contract, whether it's achievable or leave alone whether it's ultimately going to be achievable or not, the process, process that they're going through and what it's going to result in <clears throat> is going to have real implications for everybody. And I don't – I don't know. I'm not saying they're bad implications. I'm saying you just need to understand them. And I think some people are assuming it's not going to happen, or it's just going to it's going to be anything but simple. I I will say I don't think it's a good idea. I, I've been on record with that, Larry and Larry Allen. I've discussed that at, at, at some length. When you commoditize things that that are service based, you are necessarily comparing apples to rocks. Well, this is all. This is the question of how it evolves. I, right. I understand there are potential challenges. All I'm just saying is that there are a number of things underway at GSA that are very significant. Right. Well, the the analogy Larry and I used was technically Amtower is a management consultant. I focus on the marketing side of the universe, but so suppose I was lumped in with McKinsey. Do they have to bring their pricing down to Amtower? Well, I thought you were going to say, do they have to? Do you have to bring your pricing down to theirs? Um, oh. <laughs> I better look at their pricing again. <laughs> so, give, give me uh, give me some wrap up thoughts here. We still have uh, you know three or four minutes left. That I'd I, I I'm loath to let you go here without picking your brain clean. <laughs> I'm not sure there's anything left. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, I want to come back to the sort of the main theme that when you first approached me about coming on, and that is as we think about strategy going forward. Um, the, the industry has been traditionally really adept at at understanding and adapting to the way in which the government's challenges have changed. Um, we did go through a period of time when there was so much money flowing, so much growth. Let me put that – not just there's a lot of money flowing, but the growth was so almost automatic, some of it driven by overseas conflicts and so forth. But there was a big growth. It was hard not to do well. In the last few years, we've seen a market that's a, still very substantial. As I said, it's in very good shape at a global level. But the competitive pressures within that market are definitely changing. And I hear more today than I've ever heard before from government customers a concern that not enough of their vendors are really catching on, whether it's agile or whether it's really understanding the challenges the customer faces, not just with the direct mission execution, but all the forces that surround it and helping them figure out how to get from A to B in that environment. Um, some companies are doing it very well. Others are in the midst of trying to figure it out, and, and, and then there's always going to be those who don't believe it and, and don't, don't, don't change, and they'll, they'll fall by the wayside in some ways. But I think under, really recognizing that there's a yet another new set of dynamics around the marketplace 
which go all the way from down in the weeds to whatever you may think of the GSA initiative, these GSA initiatives all the way up to um, budget. So one example I'll give on the budget, one more thing on the budget is I was very surprised, although I shouldn't have been because politically I understand where it came from, that there was a proposal that's still being debated on the Democrats in the House to actually give the administration the defense dollars it wants and also substantially raise civilian uh, non-defense spending. I really thought what they would push is a lower defense number because there was no way to bring civilian up. So, you know, ultimately somebody's going to have to pay for that and figure out how we actually operate in an environment that's going to – it has to become more austere. Right. Don't get fooled by the fact that they're throwing all this money at the problem. It's going to change. Cool. Stan, as always, thanks for coming in, man. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure, Mark. It's great to be here. Uh, this is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, particularly social selling, leveraging LinkedIn, content marketing, and developing that subject matter expert platform for individuals within your company or if you're a smaller company or a division within a company, that division or your company itself. So if you want to talk about any of these, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. e-commerce merchants. Does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today. Hey, electrical contractors, I'm Matt from ABB. Are rising costs and product delays keeping you up at night? We can help you contractor better. ABB's contractor resources are designed to help you increase productivity and profitability on your commercial construction projects. Check out Contractor Better today. Visit go.abb contractorbetter contractor better.